Hello, and welcome to the 11th episode of Wildfire Matters, the podcast that covers all aspects of wildland fire management for the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. We talk with the people who help manage and protect our public lands, many dedicating their lives to the profession. Today, Jennifer and I are talking with Mike Reed, Deputy Division Chief of Aviation for BLM Fire at the National Interagency Fire Center. Welcome, Mike. Yay, Mike. Mike. Welcome to our group. Jennifer, it's a pleasure to be uh, joining you and your audience. All right. We are happy to have Mike here talk about aviation management. And before we get into that, we want to know a little bit about Mike and how he got into his career. So tell us how you got started working in Wildland Fire, Mike. That's a great question. Um, everybody's got their story, obviously, right? That's uh, that's that's kind of a unifying thing across uh, the fire agency. Um, I grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona. My dad worked for the Forest Service. Uh, he was a ranger there, and uh, I swore I would never get into the business that he was in um, because he was always gone. He was always fighting fire, and uh, so I, I told myself, "No, that's that's not for me." Following high school, um, I pursued a, a career as a doctor. I actually went to the University of Utah, and like many others, um, fighting fire in the, the off-season of, of school was what was paying for my books and my tuition, and uh, I very quickly realized that uh, smoke was in my blood, and uh, suffice it to say, I'm not a doctor today. <laughs> You're a doctor of aviation? Yeah, I'm a doctor of aviation. <laughs> Doctor of Aviation. I, I was a lot like uh, many people. I, I started out with uh, hand crews and, and engines um, and, you know, sitting on the hill one day after hiking my butt off to get into a fire, I watched a helicopter fly overhead and a bunch of people got out of it. And I thought, man, that's a better way to get into the fire. <laughs> so I, uh, I found my way onto a, a helitac crew and the rest is history. Uh, after that, I fell in love with aviation, just like I had fallen in love with fire. So from, from Helitac, where did you go from there? So Helitac was my passion. Um, I was part of several different crews. Um, most of them in, um, in Utah worked for the, the BLM, the Forest Service, and the Park Service. I ran the Zion National Park crew for many years. And then got an opportunity to come to Boise, working for the Office of Aviation Services as a, as a specialist there, mostly doing training. Um, related to aviation, but uh, spent several years with them before working my way into management as a state aviation manager for um, for Idaho BLM. Yeah, and, and you work with Jennifer. Though. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. that's yeah. where yeah. I met Mike. I yeah. think that's where we all met. So yeah, we, I think we it was go Idaho. Yeah. Yes. And my husband is also in aviation, so he knows Correct. Mike from yeah. then, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go way back. Always a small world when we Old come school. to these conversations. Right. Yep, yep. <laughs> And then you, then from Idaho State Office, you worked your way to, to the National Interagency Fire Center. Yeah, I took, a, I took a quick detour, went over to the Forest Service and worked as an um, aviation safety investigator for them for three years before coming back to uh, the national office with the BLM. All right. So how does working with aircraft differ from other positions in wildland fire? Um. Another good question. Um, first, let me say that no single position is more important than any other position. Um, it takes all of the positions in wildland fire to get the job done. And like I mentioned, I started off uh, working hand crews and engines, and I loved my time uh, doing that. Um, but there's, <clears throat> there's a level of risk that's associated with fighting fire, and that risk is compounded 
um, with the level of risk associated with uh, flying on board aircraft. Um, so that that that's one way that it differs a little bit from fire is it's 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 an added risk. Um, it's it's uh, aviation is is kind of interesting. Um, it's combining two different disciplines. So you have the discipline of of being a wildland firefighter, um, and then there's the discipline of working around aviation and the risks and 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 uh, that that comes with that. Sure, I, I I suppose there's a lot of different risks. Um, just as any firefighter has um, different risks in their position, you have to deal with aviation side of things too. So some what are the some of the things you might look for then, um, like being on a helicopter for instance, additional risks. Yeah, additional risks uh, being around a helicopter. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of moving parts um, even when they're on the ground. Um, so there's there's the the understanding where you need to be and when you need to be there, how to communicate, um, a lot of loud noises that uh, prevent our normal means of communication. So you, you have to understand how to communicate with one another when you're under the turning rotors. Um, th those are those are some of the additional risks. Uh, and then you're dealing with equipment that is very expensive equipment and oftentimes not owned by the government. Um, we contract a lot of our aircraft. And so knowing how to um, operate the doors and, and work around that equipment so that we don't cause damage to the equipment is, is also, a, a, it takes a lot of a, a years and experience to, to get comfortable with. So also with that risk, there's two kind of different things. So helitech, like you're flying in and sitting down, but then there's also the rappel side of the house too. So can you talk about kind of those little different risks too with the propellers? You bet. So we have uh, we've got a lot of different ways that we deliver firefighters. Uh, hell attack is one of those ways, and, and with a hell attack, we would go in and land the helicopter. But there are uh, several other ways that we utilize helicopters to get people in. One, as you mentioned, is rappel. Now the BLM doesn't do rappel, but our sister agency, the Forest Service, um, does does rappel very heavily, and uh, that's where we drop ropes from the helicopter as it hovers, and uh, we rappel down out of the helicopter to to the to the ground. There's also short haul where we hook a line to the bottom of the helicopter and they they basically um, sling you in like an external load. Um, uh, Park Service and Forest Service both do do this. Um, we have uh, we have other techniques such as step and that's a technique that we do use in BLM. Um, step is where we actually uh, step out of a hovering helicopter or a helicopter that may only have one skid attached to the ground and so those are, those are several ways, but there's also smoke jumpers. Smoke jumpers are um, kind of a hybrid of aviation. Um, they, they use aviation to get over the fire, and then they jump out of the plane. It's exactly what you would think it is and um, parachute their way into to the fire. So there's a lot of different mechanisms that we use aviation for to deliver uh, firefighters to the ground. And you don't really have to be on hell attack to use a helicopter. Right. No, I mean, no. as far as I, I remember my stint as a helicopter crew member for a time, one of my greatest assignments ever doing that, just working with all the different aircraft was was pretty awesome. But um, but also doing crew crew loads and um, crew delivery, I guess, to fires was pretty, pretty fun, too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, Helitech, uh Helitech specializes in the technique of utilizing helicopters and they, you know, but they. Uh, they use those helicopters to transport other firefighters. And so I had spent plenty of time on a helicopter before I ever joined a helitac crew, um, just being transported to and from fires. And you said that you use cargo or, or transport cargo 
to fires to um, that's generally in those places where you may not be able to get like an engine or or some type of vehicle into those those kind of remote areas, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's there's different uh, different ways that we use the helicopters. Either using a, a long line connected to the bottom of the uh, the helicopter with a net. Um, we can transport cargo in that way, um, especially to those places where we can't land. But um, in those places where we can land, uh, oftentimes we'll put that cargo internal and then just offload it. But uh, again, to, to your point, it's usually those locations where we can't drive uh, the equipment into. And then, of course, we always you have the buckets you can hook up to for water delivery as well. Absolutely, that's that's what uh, that's what makes um, the world of of Helitax so dynamic is because there's so many different things that we're doing, um, whether it's delivering firefighters, delivering cargo, or delivering uh, aerial suppressants to support those firefighters once they're on the ground. And oftentimes, those things come one right after another. We'll deliver those firefighters. We'll support them with gear. And then we'll put the bucket on and support them with water um, in those places where it's it's not easy to get uh, our engines and uh, hoses can't reach. I can see why people kind of gravitate towards hell attack or aviation because there's so many things that you guys do. It's just kind of diverse as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and when you think about a helicopter um, can land almost anywhere. You said even maybe hovering with one skid. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds kind of scary, um, but the nice thing about that delivery system is they can support you out in remote areas and not have to have an airport or a landing strip like an aircraft or something. You can get into those places and also be used to map fires or or eyes in the sky kind of to get the incident commander up there to take a better look at the Abs- fire. Absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of different roles yeah. that the, the helicopters play for us and and even our fixed-wing um, aircraft uh, play many of those same roles. But helicopters are very dynamic in that they can land. Um, and, uh, yeah, we use them for, for all kinds of things. That uh, Anything you can think of, we, we, we've probably tried to use a helicopter to do it. <laughs> right. But you, you just mentioned fixed-wing, too, and part of your aviation or part of being the big picture aviation program is not just helicopters. <laughs> That's how you started, but also talking about the other types of aircraft use. So um, what are some other aircraft that you use? Well, we use uh, several different um, fixed wing asset. And the, and the difference between what we call rotor wing and fixed wing is just what you would think it is. Rotor wing is is a helicopter. Fixed wing is anything that actually has wings and, and uh, can't land like a helicopter. <laughs> um, in the fixed wing world, we have uh, we have air tankers. That's probably the most um, viewed, publicly viewed um, aircraft that we utilize. We see it on the news all the time. Um, the large air tankers coming in and dropping retardant or dropping water. Um, so we have several different styles of, of aircraft that we utilize of, of different sizes to do that. But we also use fixed wing aircraft for aerial reconnaissance. Um, we put our Air Tactical Group Supervisors, uh, which control the airspace over um, a fire. Uh, We put them up in fixed wing. We mentioned smoke jumpers. Smoke jumpers used fixed wing in order to to get to their location and then jump out of the plane. So there's a lot of different uses for for fixed wing aircraft as well. And so what what would uh, air tankers be considered? 
So, terrific swing. <laughs> yeah, so air tankers come in all <laughs> sizes and shapes and capabilities, right? So uh, we have uh, single engine air tankers. The BLM is, is famous for employing single engine air tankers. Um, those air tankers drop a, a smaller amount of water retardant, but they're, they're quick. They can land in, in uh, locations where large air tankers can't land. Um, and oftentimes we'll run them in pairs or sometimes even three or four of those together in order to give us the, the impact that we need on the ground. Um, so single engine air tankers are probably on the, the smallest side of our, our air tanker fleet. Um, then we have large air tankers, and uh, then we have very large air tankers. And um, you've probably seen some of those on the news, the, the DC-10s and, and those uh, 737s. Uh, those those air, air tankers are a lot larger. In addition to that, oftentimes we'll employ the military. And when the military come in, they utilize what's, what's called a MAFS, a Modular Aerial Firefighting System, that they slide onto their C-130s and it can deliver retardant uh, the same way that any of our large air tankers can. So they come in all sizes and all shapes. Um, the other thing, too, I think folks have seen are scoopers. That's another one, I think. Yeah, scoopers are, are actually really fun to watch. And if you're lucky enough to be on a, a reservoir or a lake where a scooper is coming in, um, yeah, that's, that's a real sight to be seen. So we use uh, seats that are set up as scoopers. We call them fire bosses. Um, so they're seats on floats. Um, we also have the larger version of that, uh, the, the CL-415s that uh, uh, there's, there's several of those in the nation. And, and they, again, you know, uh, carry a lot more water than what the seat does. And uh, oftentimes they'll fly in pairs when you see those, those guys overhead. Uh, but, yeah, very dynamic, and they can, they can put a herd on a fire in a hurry. So what's it like um, working in the uh, aviation um, field for a wildland fire environment? Just um, you have all these different aerial assets. How do they blend into your ground assets? Um, well, again, that's, that's probably, that's probably uh, one of the, the biggest take-homes, right, is that aviation is a supporting role to our boots on the ground. Um, we are we're never going to be able to put a fire out simply by deploying aviation. Uh, it's always got to have those guys on the ground that are actually utilizing that that technology um, and that delivery of the aerial suppressants. So um, aviation is a is a supporting is, is a supporting role for sure. Um, yeah. I think there, yeah, I think there's kind of a misconception that, you know, we, we always get that, well, why don't we have more aircraft to put the fires out? And we have to keep reminding people they're not putting the fires out. They're helping the people on the ground. They're helping to retard the fires, like retardant, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. helping to knock the line, maybe that fire down or, or knock the flames down to where the crews on the ground can get to it and actually work that line. Yeah, exactly. And that's... Uh that's a misconception that a lot of people have. They see on the news that, uh, you know, the large air tankers have arrived and they think that that's putting the fire out. And oftentimes what they're, what they're doing is buying time for the crews on the ground to get into position. And it's the crews on the ground that actually do the, the majority of the firefighting. So yeah, to your point, um, most of the time when we're delivering aerial suppressants, whether it's retardant or water, it's simply to knock that flame down to a manageable level so the crews can get in and do what they need to do. 
that's it. the other I think misconception too is that um, they can go anywhere at any time. And so a couple fires I've been on where it's just really smoky, you can't put aircraft in the air because of that limited visibility. So that's one of those education things that, yeah, we may have aircraft, but we can't always use them because of other hazards um, or, that high winds. or high winds as well. Yep. Yep. We, uh, we definitely have, um, we definitely have restrictions to when we can use uh, aircraft and, and, uh, Winds are probably one of the, the, the primary ones, but smoke and the, the inability to, to see, that's also a huge risk for our pilots. Um, a lot of times when they're in the fire, what we call the fire traffic area, which is, is that area right around the fire itself, when they're in that fire traffic area, they're not in there alone. Um, we've got many aircraft that are in there, and if they can't see one another, that uh, presents a problem. So when, when conditions become too smoky, um, we set our aircraft down so that we don't have another... Uh, another disaster, you know, compounding the issue, the the emergency that we're there to fight in the first place, which is the fire. Is there any aircraft that can work at night? We get that question sometimes. Yeah, so within the BLM, we do not uh, fight fire at night, but that doesn't mean that our other agencies don't. And so in California in particular, uh, there are some uh, night flying agencies that, uh, that do uh, employ night vision goggles in order to uh, fly helicopters and, and deliver uh, water to the firefighters, you know, um, throughout the night. That's that's probably the only place that we see that happening right now is is in California. Um, there's a lot of talk about. Uh, I'm just going to ask if that was. Yeah, um, but the you know the key take home from that is is that once again we're supporting the firefighters on the ground. So if we don't have um, the capacity to put firefighters out there and do what it is they need to be doing at night, then there's no need to support them at night with aviation. And oftentimes that's the case due to work rest and, and just limited numbers of firefighters. We don't have enough of them to, uh, to really do at night what needs to be done. And, and therefore there's not really a call for uh, night flying for us. Well, and then um, like firefighters, pilots also have a limited time they can be in they they do and and that's a really good point so they they have regulations that they have to adhere to work rest regulations just like every firefighter does and uh, in order for us to employ a, a night flying uh, organization we would have to have you know probably a double if not a triple crew with those aircraft and so that means uh, that means three times the pilots for every aircraft and um, that's that's just not a resource that we have currently Right. We hear about pilot shortages across the United States right now, too. It makes it kind of tough. Yeah, it does. It does. So what are some of the different positions available in aviation? I'm glad you asked. Um, you know, oftentimes we see the high visibility uh, positions, the smoke jumpers, the repellers, the, the hell attack. But there are a lot of different positions in aviation. Um, and it starts with our ramp personnel, um, the, the people who are parking the airplanes. Uh, helping them to to get off the ramp. Those people who are helping to uh, load those aircraft when they're they're loading with retardant uh, ramp personnel are uh, oftentimes they come out of our firefighter ranks, but they don't have to. And some people decide that that's what they want to do right out the gate, and and, and uh, they don't have to have that fire background. Hell attack, you know, we mentioned that um, that's our helicopter crews. And uh, we have varying sizes of crews um, that range from seven personnel on a crew up upwards of 24 on a crew. And uh, those crews specialize in everything 
uh, related to the helicopter and all of those things that we talked about that a helicopter can do. Um, smoke jumpers. Um, smoke jumpers are another uh, uh, key asset for us. Smoke jumpers are highly trained firefighters um, that utilize aviation to, to get on scene. Um, and they do so by jumping out of the aircraft and uh, um, parachuting their way into those very remote uh, locations. Um, we have air tactical supervisors. Um, our air attacks are, are, again, highly trained firefighters that have a, a very good vantage point, uh, well above all the other aircraft. And they support not only keeping the fire traffic area um, organized, so that we don't have aircraft running into one another, but they also support the, the firefighters on the ground, our incident commanders, um, all of those firefighters that we've talked about. They can give them a, a bird's eye view of what's going on uh, down below. We have pilots that we employ. So we, uh, we employ several government pilots that are uh, um, both smoke jumper pilots. Uh, we also have air tactical pilots that are flying our lead planes. Um, many of those pilots actually come from our fire ranks. That's one thing that, that the BLM does is, is we develop those pilots from within. So we'll take somebody that has an interest in flying, that maybe has their private pilot's license and a little bit of time under them, and are, are also a good firefighter, and we'll develop them into an air tactical pilot. It takes many, many years for them to gain the skill they need to, to be able to do that. Um, but it makes them a, a very valuable resource because not only are they leading in the, the large air tankers, um, but they've also been boots on the ground. So they can talk to those, those firefighters that are on the ground and give them really um, accurate and valuable information about what they're seeing from their vantage point. Um, yeah, and in, in addition to that, um, you know, we have our aviation managers, those people who are Keeping, uh, keeping everything contracted and the, 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 the books rolling and, and providing our aviation safety plans and, and other uh, documents that are needed for us to, to be able to operate. And uh, the list goes on. Um, there's a lot of different positions within uh, aviation for sure. And as well, not just normal BLM, but on incident management teams, there's a group of aviation positions, too, that help support those wildland fire incidences that work closely with agency aviation personnel. Yeah, absolutely. And many of those folks are, do it collaterally, right? So they may not have a role in aviation during their day job. They they may come from fuels or other, other um, disciplines. Um, but they, they come into those uh, incident management teams and provide um, um, management of the aviation resources that the, the incident management team are using. And there's something else called unmanned aircraft systems, <laughs> which I know we didn't really dis think about discussing before, but it is part of aviation, correct? And, yeah. and um, we can use them for emergency use for flying the fires or helping our firefighters out on the line. Um, but I was also thinking about that when you were talking about um, not certain certain circumstances or situations where you couldn't fly. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah. Well, so two sides of it, right, yeah. that you brought up. Um, so obviously the private side of the, the, the house, the, the, we see more and more of those. You know, people can, can purchase drones. Um, and uh, they're those small aircraft that definitely interfere with our operations. So when we're in that fire traffic area and somebody puts one of those drones up trying to get that great footage that they're going to post to social media or whatever, um, that poses a threat to our uh, firefighting aircraft. 
uh, one of those drones going into an engine of one of our aircraft could be uh, catastrophic for the, the pilots on board. And I try to remind people all the time, um, we have a saying in aviation, it's not tail numbers, it's people. So on board, every one of those aircraft is a person or multiple people. And, uh, and so you put them at risk when, when the general public puts their drones up in that fire traffic area. So we do ask, we ask people to please avoid that. Don't, don't uh, go after that, that great video that you, you think you're going to get because it's just not worth it. And what we'll do when we notice that something like that is in the area is we'll shut down our entire aviation um, organization at that point. And that's happened on a lot of fires where we've had to set down large air tankers and that creates a, a, a compounding risk because now firefighters on the ground that were depending upon that aerial delivery of suppressants uh, don't have it or that cargo that we needed to get into them, they don't have that. And so um, it can really hamper uh, firefighting efforts, those, those people that come into our area and fly their drones. On the flip side, um, we use unmanned systems, uh, remote piloted uh, systems, uh, to our advantage as well. And we have, uh, uh, within our office in the BLM at the national level, we have an unmanned aircraft system program. And uh, we utilize those aircraft to give us better situational awareness, uh, oftentimes in situations when we can't fly regular aircraft. So uh, we can bring them in at night to provide us a uh, uh, infrared technology to show us where the fire is spreading, how far it's spreading, whether or not we're getting spot fires over the line, and they can give real-time information, you know, um, in difficult-to-see situations. We also utilize them for aerial ignition. So historically, we used uh, helicopters to light fires, backfires, whenever needed um, on wildland fires, and uh, that puts the people on board the helicopter at risk. And so there are situations where we might actually put up larger uh, UAS that have systems on board that can um, aerially ignite um, uh, fires in, in hard to get to places. So rather than having our firefighters go down into canyons or areas where it would be very dicey for them to be uh, lighting backfires to fight fire with fire, we could put up a UAS and, and have it do the work for us. So we utilize um, unmanned systems to, to help us out, and, and we're seeing more and more of that, and I think we'll continue to see uh, an increase in the utilization of that. Um, but once again, I'll return to that private citizen um, out there. I mean, that's the biggest pitch that I could uh, put out there is please don't, don't come into the fire traffic area with your own drone. Um, when our guys are flying the UAS, they're in contact with the other aircraft that are on, on the fire. Uh, they're in radio contact with other um, resources that are on the fire, and uh, the private citizen does not have that. And so it, it, it does cause quite the risk for us. Right. Not only does it create a risk for your the firefighters on the ground, the pilots, but also putting out the fire. You're, you're kind of halting that suppressant time. Yeah. The time for suppressing the fire, which could create some more issues because fire could blow up or. Absolutely. Know. Absolutely. Uh, you know, although we tell our firefighters on the ground not to be dependent upon aviation, um, oftentimes aviation is what makes their job a little bit easier. And um, without that aviation, it, it could put them in a very difficult situation. So having to set our aircraft down because somebody flew their aircraft into our fire traffic area does put the firefighters at risk at times. 
So you talked about some of the different positions available. Um, if someone was interested in this type of work, how would they get into it? Uh, that's a great question. Um, most of our positions start with uh, people understanding fire, right? So having that entry-level firefighter knowledge is key. Uh, you can't just join a hell attack crew. You can't just become a smoke jumper. You'll never find yourself as an air tactical group supervisor right out the gate. Um, you have to ha understand the discipline of fire and, and have a fire knowledge. So that's the first place to start for most of those positions is to become a firefighter. Um, join a join a hand crew or an engine and, and start gaining that knowledge you need about fire. And then when you're ready, um, explore the, the opportunities uh, out there for you, um, you know, and, and join up with a hell attack crew or a... Um, try out for the smoke jumpers uh there's there's uh and and i would encourage people who are already firefighters who might have an interest in aviation to talk to somebody that's already in that particular discipline ask them how they got started and who they talked to and and what it took for them to become uh, whatever it is that, that that you're wanting to become and about the uh the pilots um how does it differ between a helicopter pilot and a fixed wing pilot as far as, obviously they're different <laughs> systems, but is there a different time? Like, um, is it one easier than the other? How does... No, I wouldn't say one is necessarily easier than the other. Um, most of our pilots for our helicopters are contractors. Um, we don't employ any um, government helicopter pilots. Now, that's not to say that some of our pilots haven't had some helicopter time in, in, in their history as they came up uh, to the ranks of an air tactical pilot or a smoke jumper pilot, but uh, we don't employ anybody to be a helicopter pilot. Uh, most of them are contractors, and, and it takes a considerable amount of, of time for them to be qualified uh, to get certified to, to fly for us. Um, the baseline for a contract pilot is 1,500 hours, and there's a lot of other restrictions that go along with that. They have to have um, a couple hundred hours of mountain flying. They have to have so many hours in the type of aircraft that they're actually flying. And even once they have all of that, they're going to get a check ride from an OAS inspector pilot that's going to test them on all of those skills we talked about, the, the ability to take cargo from one spot to another and deliver it accurately. Um, and, and the more complicated the uh, the delivery becomes, the, the more regimented the test becomes. So for our repellers on the Forest Service side, it's, it's a pretty regimented test. And it's even more so for the short-haul pilots. Um, the test that they have to pass, even after they've met all those benchmarks, is, is pretty rigorous. And it's a very select few pilots that actually rise to that level. So um, I would say that our, our Contracted helicopter pilots are amongst some of the best uh, helicopter pilots uh, out there. As far as the fixed wing side of the house, um, same deal. Uh, there's uh, varying um, levels to be able to be qualified as a fixed wing pilot, and we contract a lot of those pilots. Many of our air tactical um, group supervisors, uh, the, uh, the air attack pilots, are contracted pilots, and they too have to have 1,500 hours. And there are a lot of other benchmarks that they have to meet before they can actually contract with us. For our government pilots, uh, they too have to meet a certain benchmark, and 1,500 hours is, is that same benchmark. So it takes a long time for a pilot uh, to, to be able to fly for us um, as a mission pilot. 
got to love to learn or love to fly, right? <laughs> do. Many, many years. I would say, you know, for, for the average person out there that decided that they wanted to get into flying, and we've had many of them. I, I've talked to many uh, pilots that started out as uh, hotshot crew members uh, or smoke jumpers that one day just decided, you know what, I would much rather be flying than doing what I'm doing right here. And uh, that's probably, if they hit it really hard, that's still probably a four to five year um, event. It, it'd be like going to college um, to be able to not only become the pilot that they need to be, but have the hours that are required for them to be able to fly for us. That's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a very important job, and we hope people out there want to do it. Yeah, Continue absolutely. To do it. Yeah. Well, it's a very competitive world right now in the, in the pilot world, and uh, so um, we're we're competing with industry yeah. constantly, and industry pays a lot better than than what we do uh, most of the time. So uh, that's why uh, within the BLM, we you know our developmental program for pilots is so important to us. Uh, we want folks that love fire to be able to fly for us, and uh, that's where you know growing them from within um, plays an important important role for us. <coughs> Currently, how many people do you have in that developmental program? So right now we've got we've got two programs at the national level. One is the Smoke Jumper Mentorship Pilot Program, and uh, we've got five individuals that we are supporting to um, gain uh, you know additional flight time uh, to eventually become Smoke Jumper pilots if they want to. And not all of them probably will, um, but we'll we'll continue to develop them until they decide that they want to take a different path or they actually get that job. We have one developmental pilot for air tactical, um, and, and that takes a little bit more for, for them to get in and, and, uh, and be qualified as an air tactical pilot or a lead plane pilot. Um, and so we have one developmental position there. Um, in our pilot ranks, we have, uh, we have five pilots that, uh, that we employ, and within those five pilots, uh, we have uh, uh, several instructor pilots, and then we've only got a couple of what are called evaluator pilots, and those evaluator pilots are the ones that are constantly flying with our, our mentor pilots to, to get them up to speed and qualify them to do missions. Um, so it's a very select group of people that actually get to, get to do that. Well, I know one, Lisa Allen, we yeah. just went through that program, and she's doing very well. I understand. We're hoping to get her on here someday. <laughs> uh, I, I think she would absolutely love that. Lisa, Lisa, along with, uh, you know, uh, Chris and Hans and several of our other pilots are all success stories for the mentorship program. That's great. So th thinking about the job, what, what is your favorite and least favorite part of it, what you do? Ah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> People are always like, mm, how do I answer this? That's tough. Um, I love the people. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's probably why I continued to do it even when it got tough. Um, fire is like a family. I, I say that all the time. And, and when you're on the outside of it and you've never experienced it, it's hard to explain to somebody just how those who you work with become your brothers and sisters. They are, they, you know, they become very close. And uh, I love that family feel. Um, I also love the purpose, you know. Um, I find, I find a, a lot of purpose in what we do. And uh, that's, what, that's what drives me. My least favorite part of it? <laughs> oh, wow. There's, there's a lot of things on a daily that I don't <laughs> like doing. 
The paperwork. The paperwork is probably <laughs> yes. key. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the contracting, those general administrative things that, that we do on a day-to-day basis. The meetings. There are so many meetings to discuss how we're going to operate the next year and what we're going to do differently. Um, the development of policy, although it, it has its high moments, um, it can be uh, it can be a real uh, drag to try to, <laughs> right. to try to get everybody to come together and agree that this is the way that we're going to do business. And so that's probably yeah. that's probably the part that I least like. Yeah, I think that's common from everybody we've right. talked to. It's like <laughs> yeah. definitely people, family connections that you keep for years, and then. Meetings, meetings, contracts, contract, paper, <laughs> policy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is all important, but we're just yeah. the least favorite. Yes, and that's why we do what we do is for that other part of it, yes, and being right. outdoors and just the the people you meet, but the gr- places you get to go. And I know um, my husband when he was in Hell Attack just has his best memories, like just flying to places that you would never fly into you know or never yeah. dream of going yeah. and just the country that you see is incredible yeah absolutely. so i could see why even being a pilot because you get to go out of the norm of just commercial pilot flying people here and there but no here you get to f- go off your <laughs> yeah it's not just yeah. a point to point it's not yeah. just airport to airport that right. these guys fly right they the, some of the things that they get to do are, are pretty unique and i i used to tell myself that all the time when i was uh, um, running a, a hell attack program i was a hell attack manager for many years and I'd have bad days. There were definitely days where I'm like, why am I doing this job? <laughs> and then I just have to look out the window and go, but wait a minute. They pay me so to fly nice. over this country. They pay me to land in the places that I land. And, and you just can't beat that. Yeah, for sure. So over the many years that you've been in wildland fire management, what are some changes you've seen? That's another really good question. It's changed quite a bit. So I, I graduated high school in um, 1992, and I started uh, fighting fire shortly thereafter. So I'll let your listeners do the math on that. <laughs> um, but when I first started um, fighting fire, there was a there was a lot of things that were different. Uh, work rest, for instance, was very different. Uh, we used to go um, out on the hand crews for 21 days plus. Um, we no longer do that. Um, now it's 14 days before you, you get some, some time off, which is important, you know. And uh, um, I remember being on the uh, Salmon Chalice, uh, middle of the night, having worked uh, probably close to, oh, 19, 20 hours straight, sitting still on the side of a hill, you know, trying to keep a fire. We don't do that much anymore. Um, we try to limit ourselves to just how long we work so that uh, that we do get that work rest in. Um you know, when I first started, a lot of our fire crews, not all of them, but a lot of them, they were collateral positions. I started on a, on a rec crew, a recreation crew. And uh, I remember we had an engine and we drove the engine around, but I, we used it to, to spray down toilets. And, <laughs> you know, and I remember getting the fire call um, that, that we needed to go to a fire and we had to go fill the engine up because we had just gotten done, you know, <laughs> using half the yeah. water to wash down, you know, um, <laughs> recreation stuff, you know. So that, that, uh, that has all changed. We've become much more a professionalized organization. And so those are probably the biggest changes that I've seen. So your time in um, aviation, what are some changes you've seen to the aviation program? 
Well, we've definitely we've definitely come a long way in the type of aircraft we use. Now, don't get me wrong; there's still some aircraft that we use that are that are fairly old. Um, they're very dated, uh, a Vietnam War era type aircraft, and we're we're slowly starting to transition some of those aircraft out and get into next generation aircraft. But probably the transition of the type of aircraft that we we once flew in. Um, when I started my career, uh, the, the type of helicopter that I was flying in was very underpowered for the things that we wanted it to go do. And, and nowadays we fly in a, in a newer generation helicopter that, that has the power that we actually need to go do the mission. So that's probably the biggest shift that I've seen is just the, the, the age of the aircraft, the type of technology that we're using. What has been your most memorable experience doing this job? Um, like I mentioned, probably the people. It all it all surrounds the people. Um, but you you get it unique experiences that you don't get anywhere else. Um, and uh, you know, I remember landing in the bottom of the Narrows um, in uh, Zion National Park. Um, one, you know, who gets to land a helicopter yeah. in the Narrows of Zion <laughs> right? National Park? But um, you know, we, we went in, uh, uh, we got a call that a lady, you know, was having heart problems um, as she, she hiked her way down through, and we decided that we were going to put uh, medical personnel in, and we, we flew in and repelled them in off of a, a particular ledge that we could land them on, and, and they decided that, no, we need to get her out. And uh, we had the opportunity um, to go in, and, and actually it was, it was a little hair-raising, to be honest with you. Uh, just me and the pilot, you know, staring at these uh, two thousand foot, you know, walls on either side of us, it's landing that in the bunk. It's kind of hard. <laughs> I can just yeah. picture the roto doesn't yeah. hit it, the It's dog. hard to uh, it's hard to forget <laughs> experiences <laughs> like that, right? Closer to the walls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, many times I look back on some of those experiences and and think, what were we thinking that we actually did what we did, you know? And um, nowadays, of course, things are a lot more calculated, and and we're a little more risk averse than maybe we were back <laughs> back when I was doing stuff like that, um, and and not all of them were good experiences. I was the um, I was the first aircraft on scene over the top of uh, Iron Forty Four when we lost nine firefighters in a helicopter crash there, and uh, that sticks in my memory pretty pretty uh, pretty boldly. Um, I had the opportunity to. Um, opportunity is probably the wrong word, but I had to carry a good friend of mine off the hill for the last time, you know, after he lost his life on a fire. Um, But all of those experiences come back to the people, whether they were good or they were bad. It's, it's, uh, it's the, the people that I was surrounded with that. That's what makes the memories. Yeah. So what advice would you give to firefighters using aviation to fight fire? Well, I think we already kind of talked about it a little bit, but um, the, the, the big takeaway is aviation doesn't put the fires out alone. Um, boots on the ground, that's, that's where it's at. Um, aviation is there to support them. And so, you know, for those firefighters that are out on the ground, um, when ordering aviation, you know, knowing that unsupported retardant line or water drops are probably not going to be as effective um, as they could be when they're supported. You know, so so make sure that you're actually in a place to, you know, um, capitalize on um, what it is you're asking for in the way of, of aerial delivered, you know, suppressants. 
Um, the other thing is, you know, aviation is a great tool, but oftentimes I think it becomes a little bit of a crutch for our firefighters. And, uh, and when we do that, um, there is a transfer of risk that takes place. We're, we're saying it, it's too risky for us to go in ourselves, so we'll just put the aviation folks in there. And it goes back to what I was saying. It's, it's not tail numbers. There, there are people on board those aircraft. So making sure that we make good decisions as to when we use aviation so we don't just transfer risk um, for no apparent reason. And, you know, finally, I would say those pilots that are out there are great resources. Now, I've been on the receiving end of a helicopter pilot telling me it's just over the next ridge. And, and hours later, right. still not able to find the fire that we were hiking into. Or there's a good road down there. I yeah. can see it. And oh, it's not a good road. It's not a good road. You only have two more chains. It's fine. It's yeah, fine. It's fine. It's right around the corner. Yeah. Um, from their vantage point, oftentimes that's what they see. But... Um, but there are a lot of them out there, like I said, that came from our fire ranks. Um, many of those pilots up there um, above above our firefighters may very well have been in their same you know boots at one point fighting fire. And those guys are great resources. They're, the air attacks that are overhead, um, they're great resources. And I would say capitalize on that. Ask them what they're seeing. Ask them for their, their opinion. Um, allow them to help you. Uh, make your your decisions as you're you're battling that fire because um, they've got the bigger picture. Um, so lean on that a little bit. Also, too, is the demand for those resources are high across the fire. So just also too think about what you're requesting and the time frames you're requesting it in because other places may need those. So yeah, just kind of think about what you're asking. That's a great point too. You know, a lot of times we think to ourselves, well, it's aviation, right? So if I request it now, it'll be here in ten minutes. Um, it doesn't often work that way. And, uh, and so that's another thing to consider is that, that uh, you, you got to be ahead of the request a little bit. If you need something, um, make sure you're requesting it early on. Um, but yeah, going back to what you're saying, make sure you think through that request too, because to pull that resource, it's a limited resource, and to pull that a resource away from maybe another fire or another mission that might be more impactful, um, yeah, that has its consequences. All right, sure. So is there any other thing? Thing that you would like to add or mention that we maybe haven't touched uh, on? You know, I would just say, you know, come join the team, <laughs> right? Um, uh, firefighting isn't for everybody, but you won't know until you try it. And uh, and so, yeah. And and one other thing I'd mention, um, and, and this, this is important to understand too, is aviation goes beyond just fire. I know we're here to talk about fire today, but we utilize aviation in a lot of different ways. So, um, even if you're not into being a firefighter or joining a, a fire aviation crew, there's a lot of different ways that we utilize aviation, um, from search and rescue to, you know, um, mapping to there's all kinds of resource work, wild horse and burrow that takes place. Uh, so aviation is a, is a, key component of everything we do even beyond our fire borders so that's a good point too a lot of our contractors helicopter pilots might be working on i don't know tours in hawaii in this you know the the off season or, or doing some other type of work and then come to fight fire absolutely we see that very often uh, you know fire is a seasonal seasonal thing although it seems to be ever expanding right um but it is a seasonal thing and and those contractors um they're in it to make money and so they're going to find employment for those those uh, pilots 
even outside of the fire uh, the fire season. And then there's a few pilots that go to or end up in Australia yeah. or New Zealand mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, aviation, aviation's everywhere, um, not just in fire, but uh, we utilize it, uh, you know, across a lot of different disciplines within uh, um, the federal agencies. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, we appreciate it. Appreciate you coming by and taking time out of your busy schedule. Yeah. I know this time, uh, or getting away from all that paperwork and meetings. Yeah, he <laughs> might have to get a break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you saved me. Actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he saved you. But we know we do appreciate <laughs> taking the time to, to just explain a little bit about aviation and what the different types of uh, helicopters and, and aircraft we use for fighting fire. And it's not about suppressing the fire with aviation. It's using those those tools aviation is a tool we use to help our firefighters on the ground suppress fire so that's a great uh, takeaway point right there yes <laughs> so we appreciate you coming by and, and talking a little bit about that and also too i like another takeaway it's not tail numbers it's the people so that's yeah. an awesome yeah. one for that one down too but i definitely think that's a gr- another great takeaway yeah um but to learn more about nipsey or the blm please visit our website at www.nifsi.gov. If you have questions, comments, or even topic suggestions for future podcasts, please e- email them by visiting nifsi.gov website and scroll down to the contact us. Use Wildfire Matters podcast in the subject line. And remember, follow us on BLM Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thanks for listening. Please join us next time when we spark a conversation with a military veteran working in wildland fire. Until then, stay Stay safe and be wildfire aware. aware.